Welcome to Foster Care Stories, where each episode we get to meet someone impacted by foster care in America and hear their story. I'm your host, Amber, and I've been a foster parent since 2013, and my passion is advocating for everyone in the foster care system to be heard and valued. Let's listen in. Hi, Brooke. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Let's try it again. That's right. Uh, We're going to scratch the third time's the charm, and we're going to move right forward to the fourth. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So let's go back to your history in foster care and give us the overview of you and your family. Sure. So uh, from the beginning, we had um, gotten started with foster care because my cousin actually needed to have a permanent place to go. And we were already kind of looking into the foster care process and we had actually taken all the classes and filled out all the paperwork. I was just really kind of sitting on it. I just hadn't turned it in. I had just left it in the pile for, uh, if I'm honest, probably about two years. Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah. I just really hadn't done it. I kept uh, really thinking, you know, a lot of all the common myths, you know, what about those kids? And I don't know, do I really want to have all that baggage in my home? Really selfish, just kind of horrible thoughts. Um, if I really look back on it and I'm honest with myself, but, um, when we did start really thinking about it and praying about it, moving forward with it, I was already on my way to, uh, turn that stuff in when we were getting calls about taking placement of my cousin. And so we had everything lined up and ready to go. And we were at the, like, let's move forward with the home study and house walkthrough kind of stage of everything. So Wow. So did DFACS identify you because you already were in their in their system basically, or did a family member tell them about you guys? Correct. A family member had, um, put our name forward because she was in another family member's care and they were, um, just a little bit more older. They were her grandparents and they just weren't sure that they could, you know, do what they needed to do for the long term because she was still pretty young. She was only six. Okay. Okay. And so moving from there, we, um, I mean, it took several months to finally get, you know, how, um, everything is in state circumstances. So moving forward, we finished up and got our license and, um, within, oh, I don't know, less than three months of having our license, we had another child in our care as well. So when you started, when you accepted your, your cousin, did, were you already planning on then accepting more placements or did you think you would just Mm -hmm. open up for your cousin and then kind of start and end there? We did. We, um, we planned to open up for more placements because that was our original intent anyways. Um, We had no idea all of the, uh, turmoil that was going to happen personally in our lives at that time. And then also with taking a child with a traumatic background, what was going to happen until we were just in the thick of it. 
Okay. So within three months, you had um, two foster children, essentially, but one, one kinship mm-hmm. and one foster. So where did you go from there? Um, it was almost kind of like a revolving door for a little while. I mean, we didn't have, we had somewhat long-term, there was a couple of different little ones, babies at first. I was a stay-at-home mom. And so we had, you know, six month here, four or five month there, somewhere just always right under a year-ish between that six to nine month mark with the little ones and toddlers. And um, all the while working on my daughter's adoption process, you know, termination of parental rights and that whole thing. Um, and then one day we took a placement of a teenager just out of nowhere. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now that is fairly rare to have a foster family. Now, let me ask you, were you already open to the idea before you were asked or was this out of the blue phone call and you kind of surprised yourself by saying yes situation? Well, uh, we were licensed zero to 18 just, um, just because I, I really, I don't know why. Uh, looking back on it, but that's what we were licensed for. And um, it was uh, out of the blue call. I mean, they do emails now. And this um, placement coordinator said, you know, um, this child is a really good child, you know, makes good grades, just had really great things to say about him, right? You know, like pumping up the call sort of a deal. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll talk to my husband because we always talk to each other about every placement and then, um, we pray about it. And I kept thinking to myself, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my husband, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a hard, a hard no. Like I have little kids. I have not ever raised a teenager. Like I work with teenagers as a teacher, you know, but having one live in my house, I, I don't know about that. That's a horse of a different color. And my husband said, you know, I'm actually going to really pray about this and I'll, um, I'll call you back later when I've thought about it. And I kept thinking that is just so, so weird, but you know, okay. And, um, he called me back later and he's like, yeah, absolutely. And, um, then our kid came, our kid came and our kid never left. So they moved forward with adoption. Yep. And you know, at that age, the child gets a choice. So um, our child chose us as much as we chose that child. How old was your teenager when it was placed with you? Um, Our teen had just turned 14. Okay. So I, I don't know what state you're in, but in Georgia, 14 is also our starting age group of when you actually have a voice in court and can start making choices for your own placement. Yes. Um, I believe they start a little bit younger here and we're in Washington. And so um, the child gets to speak in court and, um, and really gets a, a lot of a voice, gets a lawyer, gets everything really, and has, Um, a lot more say, which honestly, I wish they would give them a voice a little bit earlier on, especially um, seeing some of the things I've seen over the years. 
they really do need to have their own voice. Agreed. Although sometimes it's hard because the system already argues that that's what their guardian ad litem is for. But the reality is, at least as far as my system in Georgia, I can't speak for the United States, obviously, but they are next to useless. They don't even know the names of my children when we go to court, much less how they feel. I I would agree. In certain, certain circumstances, I've had cases where we've gone an entire year and we haven't even been appointed one. Wow. So it's not legally required for each of your cases in your state? Oh, it's required. It's just not done. Oh, so this is kind of a side note, but when you go to court dates, who represents the child in a court hearing? Me. Wow. So you have more of a voice, more of a role in court proceedings than I would say is average in the United States. I I don't know that every foster parent does because I would say, and I don't know if this is nationwide or not, but I know it's prevalent in Washington, which I may or may not get uh, backlash for it, but um, foster parents may choose to not speak out because of being blackballed. But um, I refuse to be silenced and I refuse to let my children in my care be silenced. So, so what I just does that right look like being a voice for them in court hearings? Because my experience and a lot of what I have heard about is that we are allowed to be in the courtroom, but because we are not a party to the case, we have to sit very quietly in the back and we are not lo- allowed to refute any facts, even if they're wrong. If they have been frequently, the facts of the case will be, let's say, pushed aside or even covered up because they're just details that fall through the cracks or no one knows enough about the case to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. How does that work if you are representing your child in the court hearing? What role do you actually play during that, you know, couple minutes in court? Well, are you guys provided with a caregiver's report? Uh, We do not have that. And I don't think I even know what that is. So in Washington, we have a caregiver's report. It's a standard list of, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 questions where you write up what has happened during this um, review period. So usually every review period is what, like six months, and then you have to go back into court and review the case by law. So uh, it's roughly, you know, the child's mental, physical wellness. Is there any concerns that you notice and about this particular child, just those basic um, health things, education, academics, all of that. So you have that time to write that up and many parents, foster parents will just send that in um, and let that be their voice. But you do have the right, at, at least in my state, but I would assume in many other states to go in and be present during the court hearings, which if it's local, in my county, I, I take the day off work and I go in. Um, I've taken the day off work and it's not been called on the docket. It's been near the end. And so I've had to take the next day off work and go back in the next day too. Um, and when they present, um, 
you know, both of the different sides, they'll, the judge has always said, is there the foster parent here and the guardian litem or the CASA or whoever, and do they have anything they want to say? And I stand right up and I say, yes, I do. I have lots I would like to add to this. Um, whether it's advocating for the child to be returned home, and this is why, this is what I've per personally witnessed, or whether I've seen other things that I couldn't express in that um, note. And they take it to heart. I have noticed if it's backed with research-based evidence, there's nothing for the attorney attorneys to try and dismiss which I have seen many, many times. And I have seen attorneys lie right there in court, like right before my eyes, lie about things I have seen with my own eyes. I, I couldn't believe it until I started sitting in court. Well, I work as a, um, a paralegal for, and so I've worked under a lot of different lawyers and I feel that's a pretty common game as far as how lawyers argue their cases, they're going to throw anything they can at the wall and see what sticks or see who is going to argue back. And so many times in juvenile court, it feels like everyone else is so unprofessional. They don't bother to look up, you know, mm -hmm. have the parents actually been at the last five visits or did that attorney just blow smoke? And no one has the facts or the record straight. So they get away with saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I had one attorney when I was present at a court case say that she wanted something, I don't know, stricken from the record or taken off because she didn't like what I said because I called her, like I said, what she said was false. And she's like, she basically just called me a liar in here. And I'm like, well, you actually were lying about something that just happened when we were out in the waiting area. Like that didn't actually occur. This person, this person, this person were right there. You can't say that that happened. It's very, fr I was just shocked. I've just been appalled that professionals behave that way when a child's life is at stake. It, it, it's, it's been mind blowing the past few years. I feel like the court is an endless frustration for foster parents because either you are so completely underprepared for advocating at a court level or you can be prepared and they simply silence you. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we kind of got off on a tangent there. So we'll back it back <laughs> up to your story. I'm sorry. Sometimes I just get so fascinated with how different states, it feels like a whole different foster care system from state to state, which is just so frustrating, I would think. For, you know, I love that idea of a foster parent written report into the record. We definitely do not have that here in Georgia. But I tell you what, I kind of want to call up my legislators and be like, look, Washington has got one thing right. And we definitely need to begin doing this. OK, so let's get back on track and go back to we had you had just explained that you had taken a teenager and this teenager ended up staying and you adopted your child. Can I ask you how long from the time your teenager was placed with you till the adoption? How, what was the time frame for that? Oh gosh, let me think back. I want to say about two years from start to finish because that was not a relinquishment. We went to trial with that case. 
Wow. Okay. So the teenager did not mm-hmm. come to you as a pre-adoptive placement. No, Mm-mm. no. That child was um, placed in a relative home and they um, were not ready to parent. And so then that child ended up staying with us, but still maintains contact with biological family. Okay. So moving forward from there, how many children do you have? I mean, you've told me that you were a foster parent. You and your husband were a foster parent for going on six years now. Mm-hmm. How many children to date have you had um, from foster care in your home? Oh, um, I know sometimes it's a hard question golly. because that many years, that's a lot of children. You know, um, I don't know that I actually have a number. I, I'd probably around a hundred ish, maybe I would have to really sit, sit down and think and write everybody's names down. I don't, I don't know that I, I've never actually done that. Now that That's I think okay. about it, I've that never, was kind of an out of left I've, field question. I <laughs> I've never done that. You are definitely in one of the the high level ranks of being a foster parent for over five years. There's not very many of us. And so I find that the more years we have, you run into crazy numbers of placements that you've had mm-hmm. between, I mean, we're not talking obviously long-term, but you know, respite or emergency placements or yeah. things like that. It really, it really changes how many children come into your home. It's so funny. I, I almost have a hard time relating to foster parents who tell me, well, I, we've only had two and I look at them and I'm like, I don't even know how that's possible. Do you, you must not get the same number of phone calls that I do. I know it's, it's crazy. And we definitely had some really short term placements. Like we had a couple of, um, we call them our cute little 24 hour babies. They were in during the night and out by the next night. So, um, the end, you know, that's a wild ride. You get everything ready. You're all set to go for a baby and then boom, they're gone. What are the circumstances where they're gone the next day? Uh, usually they're fam. They've found a family member by then. And so an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, somebody has stepped up, which is, you know, the ideal situation. That's impressive that your agency was able to run all the backgrounds and the checks so fast. That's a statement to your system working pretty well. Oh, I'm not with an agency. We're licensed straight through the state. Okay. So the state apparently is more efficient than my area. We definitely could never do a 24-hour turnaround of vetting a even a kinship placement I mean I still I feel bad sometimes for kinships because it is still mm-hmm. a process for them we have what's called an emergent route that we can go so if they consider it an emergent need where they need to place a child within 24 to 48 hours so that could be like let's say a foster parent needs that child to move or um it was just, you know, only a short-term foster home or they're in a holding home, then they have that 48, really 72-hour window. They'll try and push their background clearance through as quickly as possible within 72 hours. 
Um, and that happens uh, some, sometimes, I mean, it just kind of depends. It's a case by case situation, but once they're settled into like an actual foster home, then, um, then it's going to take a lot longer because at that point they're going to want to do the full home study, the walkthrough, everything. So this is basically before, I don't know what your equivalent is, but we have a 72 hour hearing from the time of removal of the home to the first court hearing to officially place them in foster care. Maybe that's that emergent where they're not officially in foster care yet. And so maybe yes. it's easier. Yeah. It's that, uh, where their court date hasn't really been established. Okay. That, that does make a lot more sense. Okay. So let's talk about where you guys are at today. How many children do you have with you currently? Currently in my home, I have eight. My oldest, that teen we discussed is, um, out and living happily on, um, not a teen anymore. They're 20. (laughs) (laughs) So you have nine children though. Um, and, but Mm -hmm. then eight living in your home. Mm -hmm. Yep. Eight at home. And how many are foster care and how many are, um, biological and adopted? So two adopted in the home, three bio and three in foster care. Are the three that are in foster care, are they siblings or are they individuals? Yes. Yep. They are all siblings. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is amazing. So let me ask you this. You have a very large family. How do you do your day by day? You said that you are a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, does your husband work? He does. Yep. So how do you keep up with nine children and one foster care case? Because that is a lot of time. Just when you talk about foster care, it's, it's almost like extracurriculars put together, right? Like more yes. than any soccer mom has ever seen. How do you make time for everyone? Well, pre-COVID or now? <laughs> oh, that is a fantastic question. Uh, well, there's nothing to make time for for COVID, at least in my area. So I'm going to say pre-COVID. So, um, are you guys not on lockdown over there? Georgia was a very loosely based stay at home order. And then as of this Friday, our governor has just decided to let small businesses open up again. Oh, Mostly, I believe, mainly because we were terrible. And I want to say we because <laughs> I was still going to Walmart as well, picking up groceries. But I've just noticed a trend. I don't know whether it's a Southern state thing or just simply my area. No one seemed to comply with the stay at home order as it was. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We are like totally shut down and like locked down today. I just took two of my boys in for like their basically well child exam. And I realized I haven't had my kids out of the house for like over a month now since school let out. And our school in Washington isn't going back to school. We're just like done now for the year. It's on at home learning, basically. And as I have them in there at the doctor's office, my youngest, <clears throat> excuse me, my youngest one who's five is smashing his cars together going, Corona! Like, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know if I'm winning at parenting or sucking, but I was laughing so hard. I'm like, should I feel bad that I'm laughing so hard at this? And the other one's like singing to himself, mama, my Corona. I'm like, oh my gosh, all these things that I thought was so funny at home are suddenly not as funny in public. I feel like my children are completely split on how they're handling this because I have actually been very, very careful. I don't bring my foster daughters, my the younger ones. I have a nine-month-old, a five-year-old, and a 17-year-old. The 17-year-old does have a job at a fast food place, and that's okay because they're only drive through only, right? So, And they wear masks and the gloves and everything like that. But the, the two little girls, they've not been anywhere. Right. Like, even though I go to Walmart, um, I ask my parents to take care of them because I'm not bringing them into Walmart right now. Mm -hmm. So but they have definitely different personalities. The baby is living her best life. She is so happy not to go to daycare. She is ecstatic (laughs) to have me 24 seven. Unfortunately, the five-year-old has the opposite. I can tell sometimes she just looks at me and she's like, I just want someone else to talk to. And I feel like we are on the same page. I'm like, same girl, same. It's so wild right now. And to think that we are going to be in the history books of this whole, I I don't even know what the history books are going to say about this time period. Yeah, hopefully they... uh don't mention all the crazy people running around for toilet paper. Yes. Or the protests, which I cannot wrap my head around. Yes. Oh, no, I've just stopped really watching a lot of the news right now, unless it's something uh, wildly entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's go back to the question of pre COVID. How does it work with Um, running your households, having two full-time jobs, foster care in the mix. How does your family make it work? So on an average day in our household, I'm up first getting ready because I teach middle school. So I'm out the door and usually running my high schooler who has zero hour with me and taking the little one to daycare. So three of us out the door by about seven. And my husband is amazing. He gets all of the, um, we call them the middles ready because they all go to um, elementary school. We have the big three, the middles, and the littles is how we kind of break people down in our house. And I so, love that. You're like almost like a Dr. Seuss book right there. <laughs> yes. Um, so he's getting all of the middles and one of the little who's a first grader ready for school and fed and out the door to their bus stop successfully every day. Um, I cannot say whether or not my children's hair is done the way I would like it, but I've had to just give, give some things up. Uh, Or some days when I come home and, you know, my first graders wearing pink, 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 and pink of five different shades. I'm like, Oh, I see daddy went with a pink thing today. Cool. 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 Awesome. (laughs) Or all polka dots or all stripes. Like, oh, daddy chose it. Awesome. But daddy does great. Daddy gets them fed. Daddy gets them safely out the door and onto the bus. It works great. And because I'm out earlier, I work at middle school, I'm home before they all get home from school, which works wonderfully. So then I can start working on dinner or getting people to 
whatever activity they have after school and so on and so forth. I handle um, all of the things social worker related and my husband and I have a pretty good breakdown. He handles a lot of the yard stuff and anything grilling and I handle social worker related stuff. And during the school year, he handles all the dentist appointments. He picks kids up, takes them to dentist stuff during the day and I handle afternoon things. So it's, we have a pretty good system. If I didn't have him, I would definitely not be able to do this. And then as far as grit, I work on it slowly on the side. So a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening, on the weekends, I meet up with my business partner and we just manage to get it done. And this leads me into what I am most excited to talk about. Let's start with the very, very basics. What is grit? So grit is guiding resilience in trauma training. And Melina and I um, are friends. We uh, both are adoptive parents and we both are teachers. And we know that there is a lack of trauma training and resilience training, at least in our area and um, probably nationwide from what we have been seeing. So when you talk about resilience and trauma in the same conversation, a lot of people would think that they are two separate concepts, but through grit, you kind of tie it together. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So when we think about trauma, there's a variety of different aspects to that. So a lot of people think about ACEs. So those adverse childhood experiences, especially when we are considering foster care, um, you might think to uh, the ACEs test, what an ACE score might be looking at. But um, a lot of times we get so focused in on that trauma that we forget that resiliency piece. And just one caring adult in a child's life can start building that resiliency piece back in. And what are some other really um, things that you can do at home to start building your child's resiliency back up and building your own resiliency back up? Because when we're dealing with kids from hard places and loving on them day in and day out, we're also coming into that secondary component, which is secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, all these things that foster parents struggle with um, and don't even realize really, but teachers and those in the medical field, police officers, social workers, anybody dealing with um, people coming from hard places are going to deal with that. And it's not something that a lot of people really want to talk about and give a name to because when you're dealing with kids, a lot of times, um, so often you are felt shamed or you have some sort of guilt if you start talking about that and saying, you know, I am feeling stressed out or I'm feeling burnt out or, you know, hearing about this all the time is bringing up all these other kind of feelings. And it's okay to talk about it. And the more we do, the more we can help the kids that we're trying to help out. How did you and your business partner 
connect the dots or kind of grab the vision for this to work in within this specific field? So I was finishing up my master's and I had talked to her. Actually, we were just talking one day at 4-H. Our kids had been in 4-H together and I was sharing with her some of my ideas and that I really wanted to um, one day be able to teach the community about trauma and resilience and what that would look like, but that I would like to be able to have a more, um, a more community outreach plan for that. And, and she was sharing with me some of her ideas and they just really kind of meshed together. And she also was going to Concordia as well and had the same minor plus another one, a, a technology leadership one. And so the more we talked, the more we kept coming back to this same piece of um, launching some sort of small business plan that would be able to go out and give instruction to teachers and foster families and the community at large, really, about trauma and resilience. So where are you guys at right now offering those resources? Where how is this put into practical daily use in foster families, in other teachers' lives? How do you get the word out there? So right now, um, as far as getting the word out, we have uh, social media and a website. We are just starting to partner with our local health department, and we're hoping to offer professional development hours to teachers in our local counties. Um, for professional development on off hour. So after um, the regular school day and hopefully even a weekend and have kind of like a Zoom training. Um, we have four courses that we've developed. And what I would love to be able to do is I'd love to be able to partner with another organization and be able to offer this um, nationwide. That would be a really neat thing. I've been seeing teachers on different teacher websites and blogs saying, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do this, but nobody's really come together and said, let's, let's figure this out. Let's work this out. So how do foster parents get access to this training? So in our state, we partner with um, the DCYF office and my nonprofit, um, we're planning on holding conferences here locally uh, where we're at so that we can have a conference specifically and specially designed just for foster parents, but also for CASAs and GALs and social workers too. Because one thing we've noticed is that social workers are desiring to have some of these trainings and they're not being offered. Um, it would be great to be able to Hello. Hey. Oh. Hey, it cut out again. My son was trying ago. to call me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I totally understand that. That's okay. In fact, I will very easily be able to quickly um go from okay. your last part to this one. So, we'll just jump right back into 
um, how you are getting this training into the hands okay. of foster parents. So we are designing uh, courses and conferences here locally to be able to get that information out to foster parents, GALs, social workers, and um, everybody involved in the foster care system. And is this training done in person or is it an online like webinars? What is So right now like? it's done online. Typically it would be done in person. Um, and we are available to come um, to other states if that is something that uh, agency or another state office would like to have is to have us come out. That's um, definitely something we're available to do. And we'd, we'd love to, the more that foster parents have access to this information, whether it's through us or really through anybody, if there's a local um, consulting firm that can provide that service to them, I mean, that's great. But we would love to be able to help foster families and social services be able to design really a trauma-informed program um, that is seeking to help these trauma-informed practices within their agency. So in the normal course of business, it would be in person. Um, are we talking, is it like a day long program? Are we talking like a couple of days? How does that look? So um, just with a basic conference, thinking about the needs of foster families and how long you could really get away for, we have a conference that's designed for one day. So roughly about eight hours. Um, what we're trying to design here in Washington is a foster family course that is one day with hopefully being able to have babysitting on site. That way everything is taken care of and the families can come, know that their kids are okay and be able to really focus on everything. Um, but I would love to also be able to really kind of dig deep and go into more of a series of coursework. Um, but it really just kind of depends on, you know, what we have available, what space we have available and what the uh, client wants. If I was working with a uh, school district or with a specific foster agency and they were really trying to switch some of their practices over to a trauma-informed practice, that would be looking at a series of coursework because you're going to be developing a model and developing a plan. So can you give me the basic overview of what your training sure. would cover? So the basic overview would be first taking a look at what is trauma and um, how does that impact the brain, right? So the real heavy, meaty scientific portion of that. I think that uh, it is really important to understand that and also to understand what is our own trauma coming into this. Um, next, we would want to take a look at secondary trauma and what is the difference between secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And so we would take a look at those, although very similar and often lumped together, we want to take a look at the slight differences 
And um, there's actually a really cool app um, that I found recently that you can kind of assess yourself weekly or daily, even if you feel like it and see kind of where you are falling with burnout and STS and so on and so forth, just so that you know and what you can do to help um, make sure you're taking time for yourself. And so that leads into what am I doing for my own self-care? How am I making sure I'm taking time to um, have that personal time that I need to make sure I'm not getting burnt out or um, I'm recognizing the secondary trauma that I have and what am I doing for those needs? And then we take a look at kind of the system as a whole. So like with teachers, we say, let's look at your whole school system um, and how do you kind of want to break this down? But if we were talking with foster parents, we'd say, let's look at the, the whole home and not necessarily foster care system as a whole, but your, your community and your network of people. What kind of trauma-informed practices can you do in your home? What is reasonable? What is a plan that you can make and some backup plans when that is inevitably not going to really work? Um, And then what are some ways that you can de-stress and self-care for you and teach that to your kids and so forth? And then uh, we talk about mindfulness and yoga and what does trauma-informed yoga look like? And um, beyond that, how do we make plans for the future as well? And really, uh, right now, we really want to talk about parenting and teaching for teachers uh, when in crisis mode, because a lot of times we're seeing a trend of parents thinking, okay, well, this is homeschool. So I'll look to Pinterest or I'll look to Instagram for ideas on how to uh, homeschool, but it's not really homeschool. Parents who choose homeschooling are choosing homeschooling. And now we've kind of all been forced into it, right? So it's not really that situation. And so we need to go ahead and be okay with, if I didn't get anything done today, I got my kids fed and they all have clothes on and they're all alive and they're all happy right? And they're probably happier letting them watch TV. So we need to do away with the Pinterest mom idea and the Instagram mom idea and be okay with realizing we are parenting and schooling in a crisis mode. And I think that this COVID-19 period of time, because it has a beginning and it will have an end, I think most foster families are going to come out of this probably with a greater degree of empathy for their foster children because we are getting just a taste of what it's like when your entire world flips upside down and how do we as individuals, how do we as systems react and adapt? And some of us are living our best lives. That would be my sister. Some of us, like me, unfortunately, feel like we are literally <laughs> treading water. Because yeah. it's it's suddenly you have zero control over some of the things you've had total control over. Like, if you want to go and play with your friends for a while, you can go and play and fr- play with your friends for a while. Well, that's not happening now. And that's how it is for a lot of our kids in care. They all the friends that they just had at the other house they were at, they suddenly can't see anymore. And it's 
zero control in their life. And the fact that our kids' behaviors may escalate just due to the unknown or the stress. And so that compassion fatigue that you talk about, that's going to escalate comparatively mm-hmm. with foster parents because we are with mm-hmm. our kids 24-7. No more do we have school. We really don't have visits with biological families or counseling out of the home. We are literally it for our children mm-hmm. for weeks now. And we're going to get to that point where, you know, the burnout, the not knowing what to do with our own either secondary trauma or primary because we are also very stressed with the unknown. And so I really think that you have hit upon something that needs to be more, it needs to be a much bigger topic of conversation, whether in trainings, in practice, in our day-to-day lives. So I am just so thankful that you've come on this um, podcast to tell us about it. Where can we find information um, specifically about your business? We're on all the social media. It's Grit, G-R-I-T-T. And our website is www.gritpnw.com because we're in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) I have siblings who live in Tacoma, Washington, (laughs) and so I knew that right away. Well, that's great. Brooke, is there anything else you would like to tell us um, before we wrap up with my final three questions for Um, you? You know, I would say parents just keep plugging away. If your kids have McDonald's for lunch followed up by cake pops and hot cocoa from Starbucks, and have only done about 20 minutes of work, not to say any names of whose house that is, but it's definitely my house today, then you are still doing okay. Your kids are happy. They're having fun. They may have sang my Corona at the doctor's office, but they have had a good day. And at the end of the day, if your kids had a good day, you are doing a good job as a parent. And that's coming from a teacher. Uh, And in Washington state, we cannot grade any new work coming in. We can offer some uh, feedback and things like that, and we can improve upon grades. But I think this is actually a beautiful opportunity to spend some time with your kids, do some projects at home. We're working on a gardening project. So even though I have my teacher paper and I have hung up some stuff in my dining room, which is now peeling the paint off my dining room walls, my kids are learning in a different way. And so take a look at it from a different angle and see what kind of fun things can you do that maybe you were going to do already and teach your kids to come alongside you. I love that. I feel like that is perfect advice for all the parents out there right at this moment. So Brooke, let me change gears and we're going to wrap up. And the first question is, where are you recording from? Where in my house am I recording from? (laughs) I am sitting in my room and currently there is a first grader knocking on my door saying mom about 5,000 times, even though her dad is right upstairs. She literally had to walk by her dad to come find me. 
I love that. I was actually um, a few minutes ago, I was sitting in my mm-hmm. closet because my five-year-old just finished her movie that did not last quite as long as I expected and <laughs> is now waiting for me to tuck her in. So I love that we both, uh, let's just go. I'm currently hiding. <laughs> <laughs> Same girl. So let's move on to question number two, which is, If you could advocate for one change in the foster care system, what would it be? Oh, geez. Um, You know, permanency. I I would advocate for permanency, whether that is reunification with a biological relative in a safe um, and quick manner, or... Uh, whether that is adoption or what, whatever that permanency is, but, but permanency, because kids are sitting two, three, four, five years in foster care. And that's, that's not, that's not having any, any kind of permanency for them. And it's not okay. And it's not what should be happening. And that is a is almost another whole topic because I, I feel that down to my core. My 17-year-old foster daughter currently living with me, she has been in care since she was 12. And it just blows away all the timelines mm-hmm. that the federal government has yeah. set up for a reason. And this concept of defects is allowed to break their own laws. It's just, mm-hmm. it's so confusing. So I, we probably both could rant on this all night, but let's move on to the last one. On the hardest days, where do you find joy? Oh, goodness. On the hardest days. Um, I would say on my hardest days, I have to go sit outside and just really, I really think I am thankful for everything. And I go through a mental checklist like I'm thankful for this house I live close to both of my parents my husband's parents and my parents I'm thankful that I live in like what is quickly becoming the house of my dreams thanks to my amazing husband I'm thankful for my husband who I've I've known since we were in fourth grade like it's all these little things and I go through my little checklist of really how I have my dream life And, um, that's where I find joy because I really, truly have a really great life. And yeah, there's a lot of things that could pull me down and suck me down. And sometimes do that secondary trauma is a killer. And, um, if you let it pull you down, you just sit there in that mess for a while. But that's really what I do is everything that God has just blessed me with, um, even this crazy life is amazing. That is some amazing advice. In fact, I think I'm going to try that tonight before I go to bed because today has not been, let's just say it's been less than perfect, (laughs) less than the idealized Instagram post 
And so I I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I actually I want to try that tonight. and put that put out that. there. I so, think putting the crazy Instagram posts is is what is out there. Like that's real life. If I look at someone's Instagram feed, I'm like, oh, your life is amazing and perfect. That's where's the real stuff? Where's your dirty house? Like I should take a picture of my room right now and put that on my Instagram. <laughs> because that's real life I don't know sometimes I just get I get intimidated by the Instagram moms quite frankly like it seems like there's maybe one sentence that says the struggle and then there's paragraphs of how they've turned it all around how good God is and I don't I'm never going to discount the goodness of God but sometimes I feel almost ashamed to be as real as what's in my head that the goodness of God is not something that I'm ever forget about, but in my, in the hard moments, sometimes that's not at the front of my thoughts. Yeah. And it's hard to find the courage to post about that when you're up against, you see a lot of other people's lives, which look way better than what you know you what I'll take currently. a picture of my hot mess. We're in the middle of remodeling a room upstairs and I'm like it's not even there's no point to clean my room because we're gonna have to take everything from down here and move it upstairs so why bother right now because I'm just gonna have to clean everything out just to move it up there at the same time I'm like I should just clean this mess because it's ridiculous but as you can see I have not I'll post it and I'll tag you in it and then you trust me you won't feel so bad I would love that (laughs) And then uh, when the boys were at the doctor, my um, my oldest son, he let the two dogs in who then proceeded to make a muddy mess all over my hardwood floors. I'm like, did you not see what was happening? I mean, come on. I think that maybe when your episode releases, we need to start a get real mm-hmm. Instagram challenge where maybe we just need to have a day where we all get to jump on board and we just get to be really, yep. really real with For each other. Sure. Yesterday, one of my kids was playing guitar just in his underwear outside. Oh, my yep. goodness. And I still have <laughs> a child knocking on my door now asking for cheese sticks. My life is far from perfect, folks. <laughs> but I guess you could say you are definitely living the dream, even if that dream sometimes has a kid in their underwear yes. or one that's needing cheese sticks. Well, Brooke, I want to thank you again for coming on here and talking with me, for reaching out, actually, and um asking me to be on the podcast I was just so excited to get your message and I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to be one of my very first guests well I hopefully I'm going to see you on the flip side of this episode and we are going to do a get real Instagram (laughs) challenge with it you have now you have given me two okay I'll send you that picture just as soon as we get off You too. Bye. All right. Have a great night. Well, friends, we reached the end of the podcast, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode and taking time out of your day to share in these stories with me. 
If you would just take a little bit more time out of your day and share this episode so that other people could reach it, I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll let me know if you have any questions for my guest today. You can contact me through Instagram under fostercare underscore stories, and you can connect with any one of my guests using the show notes. I will link all of their social media um, and where you can find them online. Again, thank you so much for joining me today and listening in. I hope you guys have an amazing day.